Good day, everyone. Welcome back to B Sides. Been gone for quite some time, a little longer than I had planned, but we've been、uh, very physically, spiritually, and emotionally drained and pulled on as we, as I've been ending the Lakeyard Christian school year and saying goodbye to some seniors and doing graduation and just a whole lot of stuff going on there. It's a season of transition for me, moving into summer, which is a very, very different rhythm than the school year. Uh, but we're back, and I got a short one this time. Just some additional thoughts on the message from Joshua six through eight, entitled "Go with God's Flow." And in case you missed it, here is the sixty-second summary. Go. A few weeks ago, I was on a senior trip with the senior class, and we went river rafting. And there, got to see how rivers work and how they have a current. And where there isn't a current and the water stops moving, there are eddies. You don't want to be in the eddy. You have to work harder. But when you're in the current, the water flows and it moves and it carries you, and it's much more effortless. And God works the same way in His universe. God is moving as a flow, as a current, and it's our goal to move with Him. Israel does this in the Battle of Jericho, literally flowing around the city for seven days. But when they get to the next city, I. Yeah, they get out of the flow and they are defeated because a guy named Achan takes some of the goods from Jericho, which God told him not to take. And we learn this very important lesson: that the flow of God is damned when we attach ourselves to things. So we want to learn detachment. Three things. First, I want to talk more about the nature of this flow. Second, I want to talk about the idea that when we're in the flow, ideas and visions come to us.、Um, as God told Joshua, "I already have given Jericho into your hands." And third, I want to talk a little bit more about attachment and detachment. So. First, the flow. What I did not say on Sunday just felt like it was a little too much to throw into one message and would make it much longer. But, but is that the creation of the universe is the byproduct of the loving and adoring flow of God within the Trinity? Now, the minute somebody mentions the Trinity, some people's eyes get glazed over, and they assume, "Okay, can't understand this." Hey, we're not trying to solve this complex idea. We're trying to see a truth about it. And here is what many theologians have been saying for many centuries, and it baffles me why it isn't discussed more because it's an amazing picture of God. So, God is these three persons: Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they share. And adoration, they share a love, they share a self-emptying amongst themselves, so that Father is pouring into Son, and Son is pouring into Spirit, and Spirit is pouring into Father, and you can go the other way around as well. So you have this ring, this loop, this flow, this eternal movement. The current keeps going, and what makes the universe and what where we have come from and what we are fueled with is this. Never-ending flow, this never-ending self-emptying. The Greek is kenosis. 
this never-ending giving of themselves to each other. That is what makes the flow happen. And that is continuing in our midst everywhere we are. The ever-present God's love and presence and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and self-control and everything that's good in his universe that is God is flowing in our midst. The question is whether or not we allow ourselves to be filled with the flow and to let it go through us. So that's the flow. It begins with God himself. It began before creation itself. And as a result, the creation comes about and you and I come about because God wanted us to experience this flow. He wanted it poured into us and poured through us. Now, In the same way that it keeps going because the three keep pouring into each other, it keeps going around the world as we receive it and pour it back into others. The problem is when we become attached to things. We grab onto things because we want them. We want to use them. We see them as objects for ourselves then the flow stops. I see a person, not as someone to let the love of God coming into me and then through me to them, but as somebody that I can love, I can possess. And then the flow stops. And then love stops. And sometimes we can do this with God, too. We can attach ourselves to the idea of God or to a definition of God or to a theological explanation of God. But we must remember is what the flow teaches us is that God is not an object over there for me to understand or move over there or or channel all my energies over there. No, God's not over there. God is a subject. He's flowing underneath and throughout everything. He's everywhere. He's always present, which means... It's not for me to go over where he is, but it's for me to see where he's already moving and let it come to and through me. He is that subjective love moving underneath our relationships, in our challenges, in our opportunities, in our conversations, wherever we go. Are we riding that current? Are we going with that flow? God is on the move everywhere. Everywhere. If we're not seeing it, and if we're not moving with it, it's because we have attached ourselves to objects. Second, I wanted to talk about that phrase, I have already given Jericho to you. Because it seems to me that when we live in the flow of God, things, ideas, dreams, missions, opportunities, people, they flow in life. And it's not so much an effort of me to own and possess and master something as much as it is to open myself up to God and let him bring me inspiration and empowerment and opportunities. Now, of course, we got to work at them and practice and use our abilities, but it's a very different outlook on things. And I want to read 
two citations from two authors for you, coming from different areas, but talking very much about the same concept. Uh, one is very much a Christian. The other does not profess to be a Christian, but it seems that God is doing something in this author's life. I think as you hear me read it, you'll understand. She's not saying the word God, but you could easily put the word God in what she's saying. So check this out. The first one is from Elizabeth Gilbert. She writes this. I believe that our planet is inhabited not only by animals and plants and bacteria and viruses, but also by ideas. Ideas are disembodied energetic life form. They are completely separate from us, but capable of interacting with us, albeit strangely. Ideas have no material body, but they do have consciousness, and they most certainly will, and they most certainly have will. Ideas are driven by a single impulse to be made manifest. And the only way an idea can be made manifest in our world is through collaboration with a human partner. It is only through a human's efforts that an idea can be escorted out of the ether and into the realm of the actual. Now, without saying these words, Gilbert is describing incarnation. God wanted to come to humans. God needed to be embodied. God needed a body. Jesus became the body. Ideas also are wanting to come and bring God's blessing and his creativity and his redemption to the world. But where are the people who are willing to embody them? Now, you're going to hear stuff about like art and stuff, but this is perfectly appropriate for whatever you're called to do. So I keep reading. Gilbert says, Therefore, ideas spend eternity swirling around us, searching for available and willing human partners. I'm talking about all ideas here. Artistic, scientific, industrial, commercial, ethical, religious, political. When an idea thinks it has found somebody, say you, who might be able to bring it into the world, the idea will pay you a visit. It will try to get your attention. Mostly, you will not notice. This is likely because you're so consumed by your own dramas, anxieties, distractions, insecurities, and duties that you aren't receptive to inspiration. You might miss the signal because you're watching TV or shopping or brooding over how angry you are at somebody or pondering your failures and mistakes or just generally really busy. The idea will try to wave you down, perhaps for a few moments, perhaps for a few months, perhaps even for a few years. But when it finally realizes that you're oblivious to its message, it will move on to someone else. And that's why, friends, detachment is so important. Finding the freedom to be open to what God is doing and flowing and moving, not what we're holding on to. Gilbert continues. But sometimes, rarely, but magnificently, there comes a day when you're open and relaxed enough to actually receive something. Your defenses might slacken and your anxieties might ease, and then magic can slip through. The idea, sensing your openness, will start to do its work on you. It will send the universal physical and emotional signals of inspiration, the chills up the arms, the hair standing up on the back of the neck, the nervous stomach, the buzzy thoughts, the feeling of falling into love or obsession. 
The idea will organize coincidences and portents to tumble across your path to keep your interest keen. You will start to notice all sorts of signs pointing you toward the idea. Everything you see and touch and do will remind you of the idea. The idea will wake you up in the middle of the night and distract you from everyday routine. The idea will not leave you alone until it has your fullest attention. Friends, doesn't that sound like the flow? Israel going around Jericho and things coming together and working in an almost effortless manner? Gilbert finishes. And then, in a quiet moment, it will ask, Do you want to work with me? At this point, you have two options for how to respond. And naturally those are, yes or no. Now for the second author, Madeline Langle, I, I hope I'm saying that right. Most of you would just know her as the author of A Wrinkle in Time. Well, she's a Christian, and she has this book called Faith, uh, Reflections on Faith and Art. And she's writing about Mary being visited by the angel Gabriel and writing very much the same concept of what Gilbert was writing about, ideas and needing to be embodied. So bear with me and listen to this one, much shorter. To paint a picture, or to write a story, or to compose a song is an incarnational activity. The artist is a servant who is willing to be a birth giver. In a very real sense, the artist, male or female, should be like Mary, who when the angel told her that she was to bear the Messiah, was obedient to the command. Obedience is an unpopular word nowadays, but the artist must be obedient to the work whether it be a symphony, a painting, or a story for a small child. I believe that each work of art, whether it is a work of genius or something very small, comes to the artist and says, Here I am! Enflesh me! Give birth to me! And the artist either says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and willingly becomes the bearer of the work, or refuses. But the obedient response is not necessarily a conscious one, and not everyone has the humble, courageous obedience of Mary. So, God is flowing through our lives. What kind of ideas, what kind of callings, what kind of visions, dreams, purposes, opportunities are flowing through our lives as well? Are we missing them? Are we saying no to them? Do we ever stop life just a little bit, detached from the things we're obsessed with, to say, here I am, your servant, my soul magnifies the Lord. Yes, I will bear that which you want me to do. I have already given Jericho into your hands. But are we open to see it? Have we said yes and become obedient servants? God's purposes. And finally, the third idea I wanted to expand. Attachment and detachment. 
Are you too attached to something? Very easy answer is, if you cannot detach from it, you are too attached to it. Now, <laughs> how do you detach from things that you are overly attached to? How do we get to this place where we're no longer dependent on, connected to, absorbed by the things around us or the people around us or the images or identities we have of ourselves? How do we free ourselves from these things and let ourselves be carried by the flow of God? How do we do that? Prayer. Prayer is how we learn detachment. But not just any kind of prayer. Not going through a list of the needs of the world and praying for the salvation of others and making sure everybody has their needs covered. Not that kind of prayer. There's a time and place for prayer that focuses on what are we attached to and how can we let go. And this is not a prayer you hear talked about a lot. It's not a prayer that a lot of Christians grow up learning. And so I want to share a little bit with you here. Now, if you have ever been part of the prayer classes I've done just once during Holy Week, um, then you, you're familiar with this one. If you haven't, here's a little taste of some of the things we do in our prayer classes. And by the way, may this make you want to join the next one we do. I have such a passion for teaching people how to pray beyond just the use of words and a to-do list um, I just really, really, really love this, and I really, really want to slip this in for you guys here and hope that maybe you can try it, maybe you can get a little bit of it. Um, for those who haven't taken the class, uh, you, you, those who have, have heard me say this. If you haven't, you haven't. Um, I, I teach this style of prayer to high school students, and they love it. Yeah, who would have thunk that you can teach teenagers to love prayer but they do. So um, on Mondays, I work with them on this kind of praying. Uh, lots of different kinds, but this one we're going to do now is um, part of it. And so the idea of this prayer is to get to a place where you're no longer praying words. Now, it's right to pray words and do those prayers, but there comes a moment, and this is the kind of prayer, when you stop using words. And so what you do is you sit down in silence. Now, if you've ever done this, you'll notice that something happens in the mind, right? Ideas come flooding in. Stress reminds you of the things that are due. Suddenly you feel aches in your body that you didn't know were there. You hear sounds like the neighbor that you didn't know is that noisy. Maybe you already did. Things start bombarding you. 10,000 things want your attention. It is really hard to sit down in silence and focus on God. Try it for one minute right now and see how many ideas come to you. It's difficult. And that's the point of this prayer. So here's what you do. You sit down. And you choose a word, a prayer word, something that makes you think of God. It can be the name Jesus. It can be shepherd. It can be lover. It can be flow. You just need a word that centers you on God. So that when you're sitting in silence and suddenly you realize you're starting to think about what flavor of ice cream you want tonight after dinner, 
then you can say, oh, wait, I'm not supposed to, I'm not, that, that's a thought that led me astray. Let me come back to sitting in silence with God. And so you let go of that idea and you use your word, good shepherd, and it brings you back. And then you can sit in silence with God again. And then you realize you're thinking about the last argument you had with your coworker. Somewhere you realize that you've done this. When you recognize that you're thinking about something, you let go of the idea and you return with your word. Good shepherd. And you begin to sit before God again. And brothers and sisters, that's it. That's it. Do this for 10 or 20 minutes. What's the point? Well, actually, there isn't really much of a point. That's what you do. But there are some great side effects, some great results that come from praying in silence before God. And one is you learn real quick the ideas your mind tends to wander to. And though every time your mind wanders, you're going to feel like you're failing and you're going to beat yourself up and say, why can't I just focus on God for like 30 seconds without being distracted? You're going to feel that way. But we have to realize that this is just how our minds work and you'll get better at it. Every time you wander away, it's an opportunity to come back to dwelling upon God. And what you're going to learn, and here's the result, and here's where we get to attachment and detachment, is you're going to start to see the things your mind gravitates to, the things you want to attach yourself to, because those are the thoughts that are going to start coming to you. And every time they come in the presence of God, you have the opportunity to practice detaching from that object, identity, person. And do this every day in addition to the way you pray already. Do this every day and you will begin to find yourself practicing this in life. You will find it easier to detach from certain things. You will find yourself less dependent because you're no longer defined by these things. You're defined by who you are when you sit in the silent presence of God. And I believe that if we do this and detach from things, we will also then in that silence and sitting them there with him, we will begin to feel and learn the flow and we will move in our day, not by our strengths and efforts, but powered and carried by the flow, the current, the river of God, his presence, his love, his being. If you don't want that, I don't know why you're listening to this. This is good stuff, friends. And I pray, I pray, I pray that we can become like the Israelites who know how to encircle the Jerichos in our lives, detach from its possessions, yet in movement and in, in the flow of God so that things just fall down for us, that ideas just come, that we become people who inherit and live in and possess the promised land that God has given us, that, that ultimate highest potential and purpose you've been called to be on this earth. So, if some of this was just weird and wacky to you, discard it. It's why it's on the B side. <laughs> but if some of this has been great, oh, I, I pray, I pray, and I hope that it's helpful and that you can just chew on these and begin to just enjoy the life of riding down God's river.
And now for our preview of the next passage in Joshua. Joshua chapters 9 through 12. And this is one of those cases where, if you remember, I was talking about in the message last week how um, I've learned to kind of just stop stressing and making messages happen and just letting them come to me. Kind of like the whole thing with ideas that we were just talking about a few minutes ago. Um, that happened this week. So I actually have a very good idea. Actually, I might I even be... I'm like 90% done with the message, which is really good before Sunday morning for me. So uh, I'm really excited. And um, I actually have some things to point you to, some specifics. So, of course, things change, but can change. But, um, yeah, I was really excited because the very first day that I opened up this passage... Uh, what I did is I just read it out loud. I love reading the narratives. Actually, I love reading scripture out loud to myself. I hear it differently that way. Um, so I'm reading it out loud, and then things are just popping out at me. And then I, I just go into prayer and kind of see what God wants to elaborate on that. And I'm I'm really challenged with the things that were coming up out of this text. And I'm sorry to say, but I have a feeling that I can't, adequately teach what I'm seeing and feeling. So I'm sorry, but you're going to get a very low-grade message compared to what I would like to do. Um, obviously, try to do my best, but uh, yeah. Here's the preview nonetheless. So let's see what you guys get out of reading it, or what you can get, what God's going to show you from the things that are sticking out to me. I'm not going to obviously give you the whole message now, but just some of the things I want you to read and think about. So just kind of give you little previews and hints. So Joshua 9, um, the Gibeonites are a people in the promised land who see what Joshua is doing, how he's defeated Jericho and I, and they're terrified. They're like, uh, we're next on the list. We don't want to be. So they fake being people from a faraway country, which was clever because Israel had a policy, God told them in Deuteronomy, that if the nation is not local, make a peace treaty with them. So the Gibeonites lie and Joshua makes a treaty with them. Come back to that. Chapter 10. Well, because they've made this treaty with the Gibeonites, the rest of the people in Canaan want to attack the Gibeonites, you traitors! So they attack them, which naturally then pulls Israel into the battle because Israel has a treaty with Gibeon. So they now got to help their friends. And so Israel goes into this battle. God miraculously helps them win this battle. Joshua commands the sun to stand still. Just this really epic battle. Um, chapter 10, they clean up the battle. They get rid of uh, the kings. They're completely victorious. Chapter 11... Um, is not too exciting details going into one of the battles. It's the northern campaign. So um, Israel is able to take out a whole other section of the promised land. And by the end of chapter 11, the campaign is basically done. Now, is everybody defeated? Is everybody out of the land? No, no. Remember, God told Israel, believe us, Deuteronomy 7.22, little by little you will take the land. So what Israel's done at this point is that they've basically broken the powers in the land and now they're moving in and they're going to grow in gradually. And one of the things we need to remember is that God has nothing against the race of people in the promised land. It's their religion that God is against. And so he wants the religion broken. So Israel moves in. And, of course, the language that God always uses for them moving in is to dispossess 
not murder and annihilate everyone, but to dispossess the land. So some of them are going to linger around for a little bit. That was actually okay. Gradually, Israel's religion, their God would invade the land, and the people would either convert or they would have to be dispossessed. That Israel wanted to convert people before killing them is evidenced in the way they treated Rahab in Jericho and all the people that joined her. Hey, anybody that is in your house, we will save. They marched around the city seven days in order to say, hey, we want you guys to be saved. Which, by the way, the seven times around the city may be symbolic of the seven nations named who are to be dispossessed. Well, I'm getting sidetracked. Um, so there's some still in the land, but Israel basically now has control. They're now going to settle in, and it's up to each family, each city, each tribe, each clan to clean house in their area. So chapter 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord God had spoken to Moses. Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. We're halfway through the book, <laughs> and the battle's over. Chapter 12, we see a, a chronology, a battle log of the victories won. Chapter 13 begins a long section where the tribes are getting given their land. But that's that's um, down the road for us. So I'm not going to teach chapters 11 and 12. I'm going to teach chapters 9 and 10. The Gibeonites and their lies to Joshua. Now, one of the things we see, please take the time to dwell on this, is Joshua 9 verse 14. The Gibeonites have lied about who they are. And we read, So the men, this is Israel, took some of their, the Gibeonite, provisions, but did not ask counsel from Yahweh. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders in the congregation swore to them. The leaders of the congregation swore to them. Uh, okay, do we get deceived? Yes. Can we blame Joshua that somebody lied to him and he gave them the benefit of the doubt? Of the doubt? No, I think I would have done the same thing. But the mistake comes when he made an agreement with them without seeking counsel from Yahweh. And for you and I, we may not always hear God's voice or get a direct leading when he, we ask him for direction in a circumstance. So you may not always say, hey, I don't know, should I make an agreement with these people or not? You may not hear God give you an answer. But you know what it does do when you appeal to him? It gives you space. It gives you time. So that you will not simply react to your emotional gut instinct on what you're seeing. I'm sure the Gibeonites with their shabby clothes and their moldy bread and their worn out sandals and their sunburnt skin and their smelly unshowered hair. I'm sure that whole scenario that they crafted to deceive Joshua, I'm sure it tugged on his heartstrings. And Joshua thought, oh my goodness, how can we turn these people down? He was manipulated. He was played. He was deceived. And maybe... If he hadn't just gone off of his emotional reaction, 
he would have been able to cross-examine more clearly, or see something that didn't add up in their story, or heard their dialect a little more clearly and realized they sound local, or watched how they behave. Were there messengers somewhere nearby that they're communicating with? There are so many ways that just a little space, by taking the time to ask God for help, might have brought clarity to the situation. I'm also really curious in the part that happens next when they find out that the Gibeonites deceived them, how Joshua handles it. Joshua is livid, naturally. But I also get the sense when I read this, and see if you do too, I get the sense that Joshua is humble enough to know that he also was not in the right. Yeah, it's easy to blame the Gibeonites. You're wrong. Execute them for what they did. But Joshua, I see, is man enough to acknowledge, no, I made an oath with these people. I'm going to keep my word. And yes, I am livid at what they did. But I recognize that I rushed into this. And now I need to deal with the consequences of my mistake. And I would be curious to know what the inner dialogue within Joshua sounded like as the congregation is demanding that Joshua get vengeance on these lying Gibeonites and Joshua takes the unpopular route and stands up against the people of Israel and says, no, I gave them my word that they shall live so they shall live. That, friends, takes as much courage as running headlong into battle. Joshua, indeed, is living up to God's command to be strong and courageous. And I would love to sit in the inner dialogue he had in that moment. Which leads us to this interesting question, then. Um, Did God defend Joshua's decision or not? I think he does. God defends Joshua and the Israelites in battle. He comes to their aid. He doesn't let them suffer for their mistake. So I think he is proud of Joshua's decision. But that leads us to an interesting crossroads. That God seems more interested in creating character within us than he does in seeing us conquer the conquest of the land. The Gibeonites are supposed to be destroyed, but they're not. Does God go against Joshua's word to say, no, no, you made a bad decision there? He doesn't. He works with Joshua. And and it's, this is something that's very challenging for me to see that God seems to want Joshua to hold to his word. The word that he committed to the Gibeonites. That that was more important to God. God keeps his word to us. He wants us to keep our word to others. And I wonder, I do wonder, if God heeded Joshua's word to make the sun stand still because Joshua was a man of his word. And maybe our words fall flat because we don't keep them. We don't value them. We throw them away. We are quick to change our minds or go against what we said or justify. I don't have to keep that promise because they wronged me. 
I don't know. I, I'm just kind of thinking and ranting. Um, these are some of the things that are sticking out to me in these chapters. So, uh, please read it, all of it and see if there's some stuff in the other chapters you're going to get. But yeah, make this your prayer and meditation this weekend. Uh, and I'll see you on Sunday. So this is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. Thanks for listening.